Good morning, IBC. You know, we continue in our series called The Real God, and uh, for those of you who have been with us the last few weeks, um, you know right about what I'm about to say in a sense, but if you're new with us or haven't been here for a couple weeks, just for the sake of reminder, the whole premise of why we are going through this series is basically comes down to this one statement, and that statement was made by A.W. Tozer who said, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. What a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. It sort of begs the question, do we really know God? Do we know God as he really is? Do we know God as he has revealed himself Or do we have a certain perspective or God that we have created in our own liking? And even as we go through the various attributes of God, oftentimes it challenges our preconceived notions, even what we thought was a clear biblical revelation of who God is. And then perhaps some of you have had these kind of epiphanies or the dots have been connected a little more accurately as to who God actually is, not who God is prior to this series. In fact, perhaps some of you have even made this connection that the God I thought I knew is not actually the God of the Bible. The God I thought I knew and served and worshipped is actually slightly distorted. Now, of course, this side of eternity, we all have a slightly distorted perspective of God. Right now, we all see somewhat dimly. But one day, we will see face to face. And so we've been going through this series called The Real God, and and really it's what it's doing. It's unpacking some of the basic attributes of who God is, the basic attributes that, that, that shine or reveal who he is, the character of God. We've looked at the goodness of God. We've looked at the, the sovereignty of God. We, last week we looked at the holiness of God, and this morning we are going to look at the wisdom of God. I'm going to ask you to do something for me just for just a brief moment, and I'm going to trust that you are not going to fall asleep in the process, but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I promise not to do anything prank-wise. Close your eyes, and I want you to think for a moment about the most difficult, stressful area of your life right now. What is the most difficult, stressful, stressful, perhaps frustrating area of your life right now? Perhaps what comes to mind as you're thinking about that, perhaps it's relational in nature, perhaps it is a struggling marriage, perhaps it is failing health, perhaps it is raising teenagers, perhaps it is taking care of an aging parent, perhaps It is direction in life. As you think about this particular 
area of stress, frustration, difficulty, keep your eyes closed. But perhaps you are uh, also, in some ways, a little confused. Perhaps you are saying, God, I'm walking with you the best I can, and, and I know your will is good, and I know you control all things, but I don't understand what's going on. I don't know what to do. I'm at a loss as to where to go from here. With your eyes closed, thinking about whatever this is in your mind, I'd like to read this quote to you. It's a longer quote, but I'll read slowly. To believe actively that our Heavenly Father constantly spreads around us providential circumstances that work for our present good and our everlasting well-being brings to the soul a variety of conclusions. Most of us go through life praying a little, planning a little, jockeying for position, hoping but never quite certain of anything and always secretly afraid that we will miss the way. This is a tragic waste of truth and never gives rise to the heart, never gives a rest to the heart. But there is a better way. It is to repudiate our own wisdom and take instead the infinite wisdom of God. Our insistence upon seeing ahead is natural enough, but it is a real hindrance to our spiritual progress. God has charged himself with the full responsibility for our eternal happiness and stands ready to take over the management of our lives the moment we turn to him in faith. You can open your eyes. What Tozer is speaking to specifically out of the knowledge of the holy, a very classic book that he has written a long time ago, is basically this, is that everything you encounter in life, everything that you experience in your life, whether it is good or whether it is of extreme difficulty, is orchestrated and used by God for our ultimate good. Everything. God's timing of things, the things that he actually allows in our life, the things that he is even redeeming because of our poor choices, all of it is providentially worked by God, but in the wisdom of God is purposed for our eternal happiness and our eternal joy in him. I recall a, a, t- a season in my life when I graduated seminary, and I was still down, Abby and I were still down in Southern California, and uh, when I graduated seminary, I was very much excited about being done with school. I feel like I've been in school perpetually, and I was at that point, for a very long time. And so I was excited for a little break. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm finally done. It was a, a, a season of completion for me, and I felt really good. I was excited just to take a couple months and kind of play, actually. And uh, after a couple months, though, maybe like you who are retired, uh, you get a little restless. After a couple months, you're like, it's time to get after it. 
It's time to get on it. I'm kind of getting a little uh, antsy, right? And so after a couple months, I, 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 I filled out five job applications, pastoral positions. And I was working with a guy that was, uh, he was the, kind of the West Coast liaison for the EV Free denomination, and so he was kind of hooking me up with a few connections. And I threw out five applications that I thought of churches that when I was looking that might be really good fits for me long term. And so one of those applications was IBC. At first, I was really excited. I was very uh, ambitious. I was very optimistic. Until after a couple months go by and a number of interviews, long story short, basically, every single one of the previous four opportunities, I always became the runner-up but never the guy. And at first it was okay. The first one, I'm like, you know what? It's okay. There's other options. It's okay. But after two, three, four go by, and again, these are runner-up opportunities. And so I've gone through a number of interviews, and I've gone through many conversations, interactions, and my wife Abby was also a part of those conversations because they want to get to know the spouse of the person they potentially hire. And, And so there's just, it's a long season of a lot of activities. And can you fill out this report? Can you fill out this application? Can you fill, share a little bit more about what you believe and what your stance and all these different things, only to say thanks, but no thanks. So there's a there's three sheets in my left drawer to this day in my office that I keep with me as a reminder. I actually titled it, Everything That's Ticking Me Off in Life. <laughs> and, uh, and I was basically kind of just venting to God because I was, I was discouraged about a number of things. I was discouraged by my walk with God. I was discouraged by the sin in my life. I was frustrated by some of the people I worked with. I was discouraged by some of my relationships. Of course, I was confused as to what God was doing because I had not yet gotten a full-time pastoral position. And I was even making the conclusion, I don't even know what I'm going to do. And I, even, it was, I, the timing is, is it's, it's incredible. I worked with Abby as her assistant at the, at the Rose Bowl game, and I remember we, we actually headed up the coast, the central coast, by San Luis Obispo, and we were just sitting there, and I distinctly remember we were sitting there drinking morning coffee, and we were just talking about next steps in life, and I was saying, I think we're just going to move to Pasadena, and I'm going to be a house husband, and I'm going to volunteer at a church somewhere, and you're going to work at the Rose Bowl Stadium, and Pastor Mike called in that same conversation and the rest is history the point is God was very much active even though I thought he was inactive God had been working all along even though I did not see what he was doing God had very much been orchestrating through a number of different people, through a number of different events, even though from my vantage point, from, from my perspective, it seemed like nothing was going on and, except a very humbling season in life. And yet God, in his wisdom, was purposely allowing me to go through that season, not only to bring me to a place of deeper humility, but also the timing of when to come here. In other words, if I would have got what I wanted when I wanted it, it's very likely that I 
Abby and I would not have moved up here. But I look back in hindsight, as no doubt many of you have done, and you see that God was actually involved in every single detail to the minutest of details. God is always, always working. And his ways are always, always perfect. His wisdom in why he does what he does is perfect. Now what is wisdom, for example? We've talked about it in previous sermons in the past for the sake of reminder. I think it's important that we understand what wisdom is, especially as it is contrasted between knowledge and understanding. It might be helpful for us even this morning to understand quickly what wisdom is not, and we must not conclude that wisdom is uh, IQ because wisdom is not IQ. Wisdom is also not intelligence. Wisdom is not how well you do on a test. No, those are not what wisdom, that's not what wisdom is. What wisdom is, at least biblically defined, is best contrasted with knowledge and understanding. So let's just break that down here for just a quick moment. Knowledge can be understood as the facts. Knowledge can be understood as the facts. People with knowledge are able to collect and remember and access all kinds of information. They're the people that win Jeopardy. They're the people that win money on Cash Cab when they used to be around. I don't know if it's still around or not. I don't know. I don't get TV anymore, so. But the fact is, those people have all kinds of information, and for some reason, their brain works very differently than mine, because mine only retains information that I use regularly, and these people have all kinds of facts and figures in their minds, and they know events, and they remember dates, and they remember people's names, and I'm like, that's great for them. They are people with a lot of knowledge. But then we go on to understanding, and understanding is a little bit different in the sense that understanding is the ability to translate meaning from the facts. It is the ability to comprehend information. It sort of answers the so what question about what we know. So when a person moves from knowledge to understanding, we see that they're able to conclude why certain facts are important to life. For the sake of illustration, we might understand it in this way. When we memorize verses through Awana, and I remember even to me as a young kid in Awana, I accumulated a number of verses that were memorized. Even to this day, the verses that quickly spit off my mouth are the verses I learned at a young age. But memorizing verses does not necessarily imply understanding. Memorizing verses is the accumulation of knowledge, but the understanding comes about when you know what these verses mean. You know what God is intending to say through this passage of Scripture. Wisdom, in the same breath, is the ability to know what to do next in any given circumstance. It's the ability to apply principles of understanding in any given context. You see, wise people know which action to take. They do the right thing in any given situation. But here's the uniqueness of wisdom. It's very possible to be be full of knowledge. It's very even common to be full of understanding of that knowledge, but consistently do the wrong thing. In other words, 
You can be very smart or intelligent and at the same time be unwise. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge, that is to have wisdom. But here's the reality of wisdom. No matter how much you learn in life, no matter how much you have studied, no matter how much you have experienced, no matter how, much, how streetwise you are, no matter how humanly wise you are, you are still very limited. Why? Because you cannot see everything. Because you do not know all. Because you do not see the end from the beginning. Because you cannot see the complexities that surround every decision that we make in life. Let me illustrate it in in this way. Envision for me for a moment, there's a man whose sole job is to, and this is like old-fashioned days, and so it's not the computerized age, but his sole job is to pull a lever that will ultimately change the direction of the track. Every day he stands at his position, at his station, and he pulls the lever at the right time, and it switches the track. And every time he switches the track, he makes a decision whether or not the train is supposed to go to north or whether the train is supposed to go south. And he is responsible. They don't press a button. Nothing's automated. He is the person in charge. And so for things to go rightly, for things to go smoothly, for things to be safe, he is responsible at this critical juncture. And he's done it very well and he's been very faithful. But also we see that this man also has a lovely family. He has a beautiful wife. They have a great loving relationship and they have one four and a half year old son who loves at times to come down and just hang out with dad. Sometimes he even delivers daddy's lunch. And so one day, this little four and a half year old son comes running down with daddy's lunch yelling, daddy, daddy. Can you envision it? And immediately a smile breaks to his face, excited to see his son. And his son runs across the track, only to trip, fall, and have his foot wedged in the track. And he needs dad's help. The problem, however, is there's already been a cue, there's a train that he hears coming. And this man has to make a decision Either he has enough time to go save his son but not pull the lever and the train will crash and kill four or 500 people or he stays at his post so the train can continue on but that would mean the expense or the sacrifice of his son. Let me ask you. What is the wisest decision to make? What is the wisest thing to do in that moment? I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but what would you do? 
No doubt, perhaps some of the the options that are coming to your mind is, well, the honorable thing, the noble thing, even the sacrificial thing would is most likely to to leave the sun so that you could save four or five hundred people. And no doubt, you might even make the the appropriate connection that in doing so, you might have a, a better understanding how our Heavenly Father felt when He gave His Son to be the Savior of the world. But that's not what I asked you. I didn't ask you what was the most sacrificial decision. I didn't ask you what was the most noble decision. I asked you what was the wisest decision. Perhaps because you do not know, because you do not see the end from the beginning, perhaps if you were to save the sun and let four or 500 people in the train die, the greater good would still be expressed because you don't know that maybe perhaps that four and a half year old boy would grow up to be another Billy Graham. And so although on one hand 400, 500 people die, we see that this person God uses to save millions for eternity. Or perhaps this boy grows up and he's a, he grows up to be a doctor who finds a cure for cancer. But you don't know that. Or you also don't know that that person that has a cure for cancer in a couple of years is actually on the train. So again, once again, it begs the question, well, what is the right decision to make? How do we know the right decision to make? And the answer is, you don't. You don't know the right decision to make Because you do not see everything. You cannot make the wisest decision in that moment because you do not see all. We are limited. We make decisions based on what we know, but in the end, we have, in a sense, very little clue as to the repercussions for our decisions and actions. All of us are like a boulder getting splashed into a lake and the ripple effect is going everywhere and all our ripple effects are crisscrossing one another and the decisions we make in this life have generational implications. The decisions we make every single day have decisions that we make even now. It's why when we think about, when Paul says, do not give Satan a foothold in your life, we see that that foothold is is little compromises over a long period of time, and little compromises over a long period of time have radical, drastic implications in our life. We are all very limited this side of eternity. In fact, even in eternity, we will still be very limited. But that's what's so amazing about God. That's so amazing about the wisdom of God is that God sees everything. If I were to give you a succinct definition of what wisdom or specifically what godly wisdom is, it would be this. Godly wisdom is wisdom in which God brings about the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people in the best possible way. Let me say that again. It's in your notes, just so you know. Godly wisdom is wisdom that brings about the best possible results 
by the best possible means for the most possible people in the best possible way. Tozer says it in this way. He says, wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning so that there can be no guess or conjecture. All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number of people for the longest time. Not only could his acts not be done better, but a better way to do them cannot be imagined. I love that last statement. Not only could God's acts not be done better, but a better way to do them cannot even be imagined. Why? Because everything that God does in his wisdom is always perfect. It has to be perfect because God himself is perfect. In fact, God cannot act in a way that is contrary to his nature. So if God is perfect, then everything he does, everything he acts upon, everything he knows is always perfect. If not, he ceases to be God. That's why Paul is able to, re- to, to, to relate this in Romans chapter 11 when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. The fact is, who can know the mind of the Lord, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16? Who can understand the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? The rhetorical question is nobody. It's not up to us. It's not our place to understand necessarily what God is always doing and why he's doing what he's doing. We are not like Joe putting God on trial. As we'll talk about in just a moment. No, our role is to rest and to trust the one who is in control. How has God revealed his wisdom to you and to me? How has God revealed his wisdom to you and to me and for all humanity? Well, there's a number of different ways. First of all, we see that God reveals his wisdom through creation. What I love about the created, the, God's created order is that it is not an unfortunate or even a fortunate accident. But we see that everything God creates is perfect, we could, go through, we could talk about a number of different examples. You medical doctors in the room or you physicists or anybody else in the sciences and sense understands in a, a little more than the average person as to how things work and why things are the way they are. But even then, everything we know raises 10 or 100 more questions because of how complex God's created order is. I mean, you even think about the position of the earth. If the, the earth was even ever so closer to the sun and given the, given the temperature of the sun, you, there'd be parts of this world, maybe all of it, that would be burned up. It would be uninhabitable. On the other hand, if the, if the earth was a little farther away from the position that God had placed it, then it too would also be uninhabitable because it would freeze. And so we see that in God's wisdom, he knows everything perfectly. And so we see that everything that God has created 
is done exactly as he had planned. That's why David says in Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak and night after night they make him known. We see also that God has revealed his wisdom through providence. Providence basically means this. It means that God works through every aspect of our life for his purposes. Psalm 33 says, The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. The, Lord stands, the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. You might recall the story or the life of Joseph, right, in Genesis, the, late, the latter part of Genesis. Let me just give you a quick synopsis just for the sake of reminder. Joseph is the youngest of uh, actually 11 brothers at this time, but at the same time, he, he is uh, the favored brother. We see there's 10 older brothers that are out in the fields, are serving their father, but Joseph is the favored brother by Jacob. Needless to say, the older brothers do not like Joseph. He's the spoiled little brat that no one likes. And now all of a sudden, Joseph walks out with this coat of many colors, right? That only Jacob had made for him, not for anybody else, but just for his favorite one. And so Joseph, Joseph goes out in the field one day and says, hey, I got a couple dreams to share with you. <laughs> Want to hear them? Sure. Oh, by the way, I, I, you were all these she's and I was this one she's, but you all bowed down to me. Yeah, that just kind of put them over the edge just enough to go say, we're done with this. And so they decide to kill him. They've had enough. Thankfully, Judah steps in by God's sovereignty, by the way, by his providential working, not because Judah himself was so noble. He was actually in on all this, but yet God worked in his heart to save Joseph and say, no, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a pit and sell him for some money, which they did. This caravan comes by. We see that Joseph is pulled out of the pit. He's sold into slavery. He becomes a bond slave to uh, uh, Potiphar's wife and Potiphar himself, who's one of the leader of the armies. And then we see that He gets falsely accused for doing the right thing. That in and of itself is very difficult. I do the right thing, and that things get worse. And so he gets thrown into prison. He interprets some dreams for the baker and for the the cupbearer. Don't forget about me. Oh, they forget about him for another couple years. And you might be thinking, like Joseph in this moment, going, God has abandoned me. God has forgotten me. There is no hope. I might as well be as good as dead right now. In fact, my family thinks I'm dead right now. God, what in the world are you doing? God, are you even doing anything? God, are you actually in control? God, are, do you even care? God, is this really the right thing to do? And of course, we have the privilege of seeing the end of the story. And as we see that God in his providence and in his wisdom is using this to strategically put Joseph in the right place, in fact, the second next to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt so that not only the people of Egypt will be saved, but his own family will be saved, the people of Israel. And so we see that as Joseph concludes in Genesis 50, verse 20, as he's speaking to his brothers, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
You see, from a nearsighted perspective, a nearsighted human perspective, things really went from bad to worse in the life of Joseph. But from God's perspective, he was actually orchestrating everything from the beginning to bring it about that Joseph would end up in Egypt because only God knew that there would be seven years of famine. No one else knew that, but God did. And so in his wisdom says, I'm going to make sure that Joseph gets here, and this is a way in which I'm going to give it here, but I'm also going to work through this because I'm going to bring about transformation in the lives of these brothers, which you see that they're very humble state later in life. And we see that there's ultimately reconciliation and redemption as a result of their poor decisions when they were younger. The point is this. God brings about the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people in the best possible way. God reveals his wisdom through his providence, but we also see that God reveals his wisdom through the redemption of the human race. In other words, God's means of saving people for eternity has always left some people confused and many others dumbfounded. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the wisdom of God is, 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 is radically contrasted with the wisdom of this world. We see even in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians that the wisdom of God, this whole idea that God would send a Savior to the world and die so that he could, re- so that he could redeem the human race is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. You see, without a spiritual lens, without kind of spiritual goggles on, we see that God's ways and his redemption and even his wisdom is difficult to comprehend. In fact, we might even say that's ludicrous. That is ridiculous. God reveals his wisdom through his redemption, but even more than that, he reveals his wisdom through Jesus Christ himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. The point is this, God's wisdom is, as I said before, foolishness to fallen humanity, but yet this was the means by which in his wisdom God was going to save the world. There are things, brothers and sisters, this side of eternity that will boggle our minds. Perhaps questions such as, why did God allow evil in the first place? Why did even God let the potential for us to make the wrong decisions And yet, in in eternity, we won't be able to sin. So why did he make us be able to sin now? Why did God do this? That is a great question that you can ask God in eternity. I got my own perspective on that. But again, I'll let God answer that because he knows. I love what Packer, J.I. Packer, he says it this way. He says, God's almighty wisdom is always active and never fails. All his works of creation and providence and grace display it. And until we can see it in them, we just, until we can see it in them, we just are not seeing them straight. But we cannot recognize God's wisdom unless we know the end 
for which he is working. God's wisdom is not and never was pledged to keep a fallen world happy or to make ungodliness comfortable. Not even to Christians has he promised a trouble-free life, rather the reverse. He has other ends in view for life in this world that's simply to make it easy for everyone, then simply to make it easy for everyone. So what is he after then? What is God's goal? What is God's aim? Well, he plans that a great host of mankind should come to love and honor him. His ultimate objective is to bring them to a state in which they please him entirely and praise him adequately. A state in which he is all in all to them and he and they rejoice continually in the knowledge of each other's love. Men rejoicing in the saving love of God set upon them for all eternity and God rejoicing in the responsive love of men drawn out of them by grace through the gospel. That is a mouthful, that is a mindful. Let me just summarize it in one succinct statement. Until you and I grasp God's ultimate purpose for our lives, both now and for eternity, we will always be perpetually frustrated and disillusioned. Until you understand and grasp God's ultimate purpose for your life, both now and for eternity, you will always be perpetually frustrated and disillusioned. In other words, you will always be frustrated by your circumstances and probably likely at God as well if your ultimate aim is not, God, make me more like you. You will always be, in a, to some, in some degree, a little irritated at the way in which God works if your ultimate aim is not, God, may you glorify yourself in me. You will always be a little taken back if your ultimate aim isn't consistent with God's ultimate aim that says, God, do with me however you deem fit because I am your bond slave. You see, how things appear in your life and how things appear in history are not the full picture. God is doing things that you and I cannot see. Let me ask you this, IBC family. What if God is perfectly orchestrating a perfect end for your life? What if God is perfectly orchestrating a perfect end for your life? What if your extremely difficult and seemingly unbearable circumstance is actually God's perfect means to accomplish his his perfect end in you? Perhaps this would change your perspective of your current struggle. Perhaps this might even change how you accept this current struggle and endure this current struggle. There's a young gentleman in our church body who I had the fortunate opportunity to baptize not too long ago. 
And what I love about his testimony that he's going to share right now is that though our circumstances horizontally can be difficult, God is using them for his glory. And he's using them to radically transform us. Jerry Davis, come on up here right now and share with us how God has been radically working in your life. Good morning, IBC family. How are you doing this morning? I'm going to start off by reading uh, Romans 8, chapter 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called accordingly to his purpose for them. Hopefully I can keep this together. It's going to be a tough one here, but bear with me, okay? On this day one year ago today, I lost my mother. And I lost the one person who always kept me in the good graces of the Lord, or so I thought. She always prayed for my health and safety, and I was not always a good follower of the Lord. I never looked at his blessings. I only blamed him for the negativity in my life. It wasn't until after losing my mom that I start to listen to what the Lord was trying to tell me. He sent me many blessings and surrounded me by great people. And looking back, he has always done, he's always done that. I was just too stubborn to listen to him. I'm up here in front of you today to tell you no matter how dark the path, there is a light at the end and the good Lord has a plan. You just have to trust in his plan. Losing my mom not only set her free from her ongoing suffering, it opened my eyes to the correct path that he has laid out for me. I need to thank a few of the Lord's blessings here today as well. My beautiful wife, Andrea, who is in my eyes, an angel who was sent by the Lord. And I say this without hesitation, I would not be here today without her. Dan Wilder Jr., who has been a mentor and has helped me in ways I cannot even explain. Dan Wilder Sr. has always been a true supporter of me and a constant reminder looking to see the good in people first. David Kraske, who has the kindness to listen to me even when I am angry and always finds a way to leave you feeling better about yourself. Dale and Tammy Rose, who without Dale I would not have ever set foot through this church. And Tammy, always finding a smile to give and a kind word to leave you with. Now ever since I set foot in this church, I have been welcomed with open arms. Not one judgment did I feel. From smiling Dan, refusing to let me just sit in the back without getting a hello out of me. Strong man Randy, who is a big teddy bear and is like hugging a tree stump. <laughs> Pastor Mike, whose calming smile and soothing voice brings warm feelings every time I get to be around him. Pastor Tom, wow. If you don't get excited or pumped up around the Lord by him, you need to check your pulse. Because this guy's a real cheerleader. And there are many more of you here who have made me and my wife feel so welcomed here, I am blown away. Of course, I could not go without thanking Pastor Aaron, who's a guiding light, a person. For some reason I can't explain, I feel very comfortable to be open around. He has always inspired me to really relish in what the gifts the Lord has bestowed on me. Now last and certainly but not least, the reason I am up here today, our Lord and Savior, I thank you for helping me finally see these blessings and keep reaching out to you for guidance. You have gifted me with so much in my life, and I look forward to every day because of you. 
I look forward to going to paradise where we will all be reunited and await your arrival. Thank you, everyone, for allowing me the time to stand before you and proclaim my appreciation and love for the Lord. And my message to anyone would be to listen to him and pay attention to what he is saying. Let the Lord captain your vessel through these calm seas and through strong storms. Do not lose faith in his ability to guide you to safe harbor. May the Lord bless everyone as he has blessed me today. I will close with James 2, chapter 17. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down from us, from our God, our Father, who created all the light in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Thank you, guys. If you were to hear more about Jerry's testimony, you would... uh understand that the losing of his mother a year ago today uh, was devastating because there was one secure, positive uh, resource and hope. And no doubt that's even difficult to this day. But what I love about your testimony, Jerry, is that God, in his wisdom, used it to get your attention. And you're here today because God in his wisdom is orchestrating all events. And he's doing that for every single one of us in here. God in his wisdom does everything perfectly. Even though we are limited, God is not. He sees all and he works all to the glory of his name. How are you and I supposed to respond to this? How are you and I supposed to be uh, responding to God's wisdom as he works every, in every detail every single day? I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter five. He says, let us live wisely. Not as unwise people, but to live, to live wisely and to make the best use of our time knowing that the days are evil. Don't act thoughtlessly, don't act foolishly, but instead understand what the Lord, the will of the Lord is. In other words, because God is wise, he desires us as his children to also live and to function and to act in a way that is in accordance to his wisdom. Yes, we are still limited this side of eternity. Yes, we are still uh, human beings. We are not God, but he calls us to live as wise people and dwelt by his spirit. And there's a number of different ways in which you and I are called in Scripture to exude a godly wisdom. First and foremost, we see that we must reverence God's ways. To live wisely as a Christian means to reverence God's ways. To reverence God's ways means this, that God's wisdom far surpasses, is far superior than any wisdom the world has to offer. It doesn't mean that we disregard things that we discover. It doesn't mean that we disregard some wise sayings, perhaps, even some great resources out there. But the fact is, we must reverence God's ways as better than any other way. Secondly, we must read and understand God's word. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God might be prepared for every good work. 
So we must understand that if you desire wisdom, then wisdom has already been revealed. It's amazing how oftentimes we go, man, I wish I knew the right thing to do, and we just don't look down. We don't open our ears and go, God is already speaking. Are we stopping to listen? Thirdly, we see that we, to wait, the way in which we live wisely is we must ask for it. I love what James says in James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I love what James says elsewhere in James chapter 4 when he says, the reason why you have not is why? Because you ask not. And the reason why you have not is because you ask with the wrong intentions or the wrong motivations. But God, in his wisdom and in his ways, uses all kinds of means, all kinds of ways to give you this wisdom so that you won't be walking around aimlessly, but that you will know what the will of the Lord is. Not because he says everything, but he gives you exactly what he wants you to know. Fourth and finally, and I believe it is the most important, we must learn to trust God completely. We must learn to trust God completely. You see, trust is a synonym of faith. And you and I, as as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus, have been called into a life of faith, a life of trusting God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And it's interesting that when you look all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the way in which Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden wasn't that the fruit looked good. No, he tempted it by not trusting God. He said, did God really say? Isn't God withholding from you? Can you really believe or trust in the goodness of God? Isn't he kind of manipulating you? No, actually, and he creates doubts in their minds. And you know what? Even to this day, that is the way in which Satan has been working to make us doubt God's word and therefore to not trust in his ways. But the fact is, you and I are called to trust and to rest in God's ways, to rest in his wisdom because God brings about the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people in the best possible way. Worship team, you can come on up here. The fact is when we trust in the wisdom of God by understanding his ultimate goal for you and me, then you will be able to accept whatever situation comes, whatever situation that he has brought to you in your life because you know it is for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. Brothers and sisters, not only do we have a good God, not only do we have a holy God, not only is God a sovereign God, but God is an all-wise God. And everything that he does is perfect because it is consistent with his perfect nature.